many of us struggle or think about what we should eat. Clean food, dirty food. You have to eat this list of magic foods and avoid this list of magic foods. I think the way that foods can affect how we feel, how we think, how we function, are really very profound. Maybe it's the food that you're eating is causing your illness. How in the world does a microbe that lives in your gut affect your brain? The fastest growing new food label is gluten-free. Is genetically modified food safe? Is there really an epidemic of gluten sensitivity? Americans are fatter than ever before. Is it consumers that want healthier foods that start all this? Is it the media that sends out some news reports about food products? They have a motivation to convince you of the fad of today or the pseudoscience of yesterday. Ideal diets that you could use to avoid disease and live forever. Do a detox, brothers and sisters. I don't mean to belittle your beliefs, and I'm sure they're sincerely held, but this is nonsense. Hey, it's Joe Sorge, and welcome to another episode of Make Belief, the podcast where existing beliefs are challenged and new beliefs are sometimes born. Today, we're going to talk about a really delicious topic, food. In the United States, we have a large number of food choices. In fact, we probably have too many food choices. And those choices lead to a host of opinions about what we should eat or should not eat. So we thought it might be interesting to explore the outside influences that shape our beliefs about food. What do you believe about food? Why do you choose to eat certain foods and not other foods? Obviously, our upbringings played a major role, but what about the media or celebrities or our friends? Or maybe you just want to lose weight. Or maybe you just trust your taste buds. In this episode, we're going to examine a number of really interesting beliefs related to food and diet, including religious stories about food, prehistoric food sources, the impact of microorganisms living in our bodies, the role of gluten, celebrity diets, and the safety of genetically modified foods. To kick this off, we talked to Dr. Alan Levinovitz of James Madison University about the interplay between religious stories and food myths. The most famous story in the world starts in a garden. Long ago, humans lived in an organic, all-natural, divinely designed garden where we only eat organic fruits, vegetables free from pesticides and GMOs and processed grains and high fructose corn syrup. Adam and Eve are happy. They're immortal. They don't <laughs> suffer. And then one day, an evil advertiser came along and hissed at them. Eat this food. A fruit, not just an inorganic fruit. It's a fruit that contains knowledge. And Eve listened. She ate from the tree of knowledge. And then what happens? Boom. They are kicked out of the garden, out of this paradise, cursed with mortality. And what was the cause of it all? Eating the wrong food and acquiring knowledge. And so when we shift to the present day, it's important to remember the story about how eating the wrong food ejected us from paradise and the association of that wrong food with knowledge. My area of expertise is religion and literature, which basically means the connection between the way that we talk and the way that we write and the kinds of things that we believe most deeply. I see language 
in modern dietary trends, language like clean foods and unclean foods, pure foods and impure foods. I hear people say things like, this is a sinful pleasure or this is a guilty treat. And what I think to myself is, hey, wait a second, this sounds a lot like the language of religion. In the past, the Garden of Eden myth wasn't thought of as a myth. It was thought of as literal historical reality. But nowadays, when science is taken to be the authority on what we should eat, we can no longer invoke religious myths. So we need the same story, but we need it in the language of science. That happens with the romanticization of prehistoric man. This idea that instead of the Garden of Eden, it was a world untouched by technology, and that was the real paradise. But if you peel back the layers, you see the same kind of power of the idea that there was a paradise once and that we've fallen away from that paradise due to the application of our knowledge to the world. When you try to understand why it is that people buy into the idea that pure foods are salvation and impure foods are damnation, and they associate impurity with processing and synthetic chemicals, they're buying into an ancient mythic archetype that shapes virtually every single diet from the beginning of time to the present. So we asked Dr. Levinovitz whether beliefs about nutrition and diet were becoming a new form of religion. I think that diet and health practices definitely play the part that religious practices used to play in people's lives. I don't think it's any coincidence that people who eat a paleolithic diet, for example, are also more likely to see each other at the CrossFit gym. So we have these kind of quasi-secular churches. You want to gather with other people who share your understanding of how to live life well. And a part of that is, of course, how to eat well. And if you look closer at it, people group themselves with other people who eat the same way they do. Well, I'm a, I'm a paleolithic dieter, or I'm a vegetarian, or I'm a vegan. And often these diets have ethical ramifications. So you eat a certain way because you believe it's better for the world, but they also have ramifications for your own health. And that belief that there's some kind of unity of goodness, that you can eat something that's somehow better in all ways for everything, that's a religious belief. Okay, so a food choice is like a modern-day religion for some people. Let me see if I get the story straight. In the biblical myth, good food came from God and the Garden of Eden, and bad food came from the devil on the Tree of Knowledge. So in the modern-day version, I guess, good food comes from God's cousin, Mother Nature, and bad food comes from the devil's cousin, Papa John's? Well, you know what I mean. But the moral of the modern-day myth implies that we should avoid foods that have been processed by technology and science using knowledge. Otherwise, we may be banished from Whole Foods forever. I think that it is a belief. I feel like it's the Bible. You love the Bible, so you try and obey the Bible. Beyonce, I heard you lost 20 pounds. I did. We all want to know, what did you do? <laughs> I did a master cleanser. The South Beach diet changed the way many Americans slimmed down. Oh man, I really want to try Atkins. If it's like organic, you know, it's basically good. I know the paleo diet's basically like a caveman diet. I think that's the best thing for everyone, is to go back and start from the beginning. 
That's actually an interesting thought. What was the beginning? What did early humans eat? Was it a bountiful garden of fruits and vegetables, or did they find their food in other ways? We asked a prehistoric archaeologist to tell us about what's been found in the fossil record. My name is Brianna Pobiner. I work at the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution. I'm a research scientist, I'm a prehistoric archaeologist, and I'm interested in the evolution of human diet and particularly meat eating. Humans have eaten meat for over three million years, and there's good archaeological evidence for that. Doesn't mean that every human has eaten meat, but it is something that's a part of our deep evolutionary history. We know that based on two things. The main thing is we have fossils of animal bones that have butchery marks left by stone knives, and those date back over three million years. And that's really the smoking gun of we know that early humans were eating meat. We can also look at the wear on the teeth or the pits and scratches, the dental microwear of early humans, and some of those are characteristic of meat eating. Well, maybe some early humans ate meat, but how do we know that most early humans were not vegetarians? Our ancestors did not have much choice, certainly until agriculture and domestication came around. Between maybe 10, 12,000 years ago, maybe 13,000 years ago. Vegetarianism and veganism are definitely a modern invention, and we have access to such a wide variety of foods today that it's very easy to be vegetarian or vegan or pescatarian or any other flavor of non-meat eater, and it's not going to have a negative health impact. We asked if there was any evidence linking the eating of meat to the evolution of modern humans. There's an interesting hypothesis out there called the expensive tissue hypothesis that relates meat eating to the evolution of our enormous brains. And we have really big brains for our body size compared to any other primates and really any other mammals. I think it's a pretty good hypothesis, the idea that there was this link between meat eating and the original expansion of brain size. There's also an idea that cooking um, really ramped that up. We have evidence from about a million years ago of the controlled use of fire, of people making campfires and cooking food, cooking meat, cooking plants. Um, and that releases even more energy in plants, in meat. It allows us to eat things that would be poisonous otherwise, that we couldn't process physically otherwise. So I think cooking was, in a sense, like the second dietary revolution after the origin of meat eating. Wait a minute. Cooking? Meat eating? Is that the story that Juice Press and Cashy and Nature's Choice want us to believe? The dogma that I've been fed is that except for in the last several hundred years, our ancestors ate very little but raw nuts and berries. And kale. Can't forget kale. But if agricultural technology wasn't invented until about 13,000 years ago, then it wasn't possible for them to eat a lot of kale or to drink cold-pressed juices after they worked out at the gym. Could the paleo camp be right? Should we all be eating a lot of cooked meat? Let's hear more from Brianna about the paleo diet. The paleo diet, in a sense, is a modern movement that's about trying to eat like our ancestors ate with the assumption that they were much healthier than we are today. A lot of it is about excluding food, excluding grain or excluding starchy vegetables or excluding legumes or excluding dairy. And one of the big premises of the modern paleo diet is that we have not had enough time to evolve to be able to digest some of these foods. And that's not true. I think it's also part of this myth that anything that is ancestral was more pure and better but our ancestors, they didn't live much past 50. Well, now that throws a wrinkle into the story. 
Nowadays, 50 is the new 30. Not time to go casket shopping. So let's move on to explore some more modern ideas about food and human health. We all know that eating certain foods can make us feel good. But if we eat too much, we feel discomfort. What's the connection between food and feelings? Let's hear from Nestle food scientist Haribit Watsky. The gut has a silent voice. It might surprise you. Our gut has a full-fledged brain. Because the gut is connected to our emotional limbic system. So they do speak with each other and make decisions. Now, if there is a, a gut brain, we should also learn to talk with this brain. And now from Dr. Jeffrey Anderson from the University of Utah. There's an entire nervous system in the gut that is pretty much independently responsible for processing, moving of food through the intestines, and that uh, the gut has its own brain, located in little patches all along the walls of the intestine. And that gut brain is constantly bathed, not only in the foods that we eat, but in stomach acids and bile salts. And although we've known for a long time that the gut is home to the bacterium E. coli, modern genetic techniques have allowed scientists to discover thousands, if not millions, of species of bacteria and viruses also living in the human intestines. These microorganisms are collectively called the microbiome. And this field of research has raised a controversial question. Can the organisms that live in our gut influence the way we feel, or perhaps even influence our health? We first asked someone who believes that they can. We spoke with Dr. Robin Chutkin, who's an integrative gastroenterologist and founder of the Digestive Center for Women in Washington, DC. What is a microbiome? It refers to all the microbes that live in or on the human body. And although you can't see them, if you scraped up all the microbes, they would weigh about three or four pounds. And again, most of them are in our gut, in our colon, specifically in the large intestine. And microbes are really important because it turns out that almost every bodily function from the way our brain works to the way digestion works, emotions, immune system, cardiovascular system, really all have to do with microbes. Microbes are kind of the worker bees that make all those systems happen. The gut brain refers to the communication system between the nervous system in the gut and the central nervous system, which we think of traditionally as the brain. And it's a really important interaction because it turns out that about 80 to 90% of serotonin, which we all know as our feel-good hormone, is actually located in the gut. So the gut drives and controls a lot of our emotional well-being. The vagus nerve controls the heart, sort of in the thorax, and reactions throughout the rest of the body. So if the door opened now and a huge snake came slithering into my office, I would be very scared. And what would happen in an instant is my pupils would dilate, my blood pressure would go up, my heart rate would go up, my respiratory rate would go up, I'd start to sweat, my hair would stand on end. All of this just because of an emotion for seeing the snake. That emotion, that sort of fear, stress emotion, would send adrenaline to all the cells in my body and all these different physical manifestations would be apparent and measurable. And we think that a lot of these gut-brain interactions are manifest throughout our body, which is why it's so imperative to have a healthy gut, because it really is contributing and perhaps even controlling much of our thought process and our emotions. This whole concept of, you know, feeling it in the gut or butterflies in your stomach, very real. So Dr. Chutkin is postulating that because there are nerves in our gut that connect to our brain, our emotions and thought processes can be influenced not only by the foods that we eat, 
but by the gut microorganisms that live like scavengers on those foods. While that's a difficult concept to test, a group of scientists at Harvard carried out a preliminary experiment to see if different foods can change the types of organisms that live in the gut. Dr. Chutkin describes the results. They took nine volunteers and they put them on two very extreme diets. The first was a low-carb, high-animal protein, sort of Atkins-like diet with bacon and eggs and brisket and salami, and I think it was pork rinds for snacks. And they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after the diet. And then they rested the same population of patients, and they put them on a plant-based vegan diet of jasmine rice and tomatoes and lentils and squash and fruit instead of pork rinds for snacks. And what they discovered was astounding, that not only did the bacterial species start to shift, but they shifted incredibly quickly. So within about a day, the species started to change. And we saw on the meat and cheese diet, predominance of the bile-loving species, what we call the bilophilia species, that help to break down fat, but are also associated with inflammation. And not only did the different bacterial species start to shift, but the genes that were activated started to change too. Well, let me interrupt to clarify that last point. The bacterial genes began to change, but the researchers did not measure changes in the human genes. To test for changes in the human genes, they would have had to look in the blood or tissues of the experimental subjects. But that's not where they looked. Instead, they looked in the... That may sound like an insignificant difference, but there's a huge hill to climb before taking findings from the bacteria in a stool specimen and proving that the same findings can be repeated in human tissues. So here was this connection that the food you eat determines the bacteria you grow in your gut garden, as I like to call it, and the bacteria turn on different genes. And what do the genes do? They activate disease. So you are what you eat and what your gut bacteria eats, even more importantly. Well, another clarification. The Harvard experiment involved healthy volunteers. There was no report of disease in the volunteers before or after the experiments. They did, however, observe the appearance of a bacterial species that's been shown to be correlated with intestinal inflammation in laboratory mice. Scientists have to be careful when they observe correlations because it may not mean that one thing causes the other. Let me give you an example. Let's say you cut yourself and it gets infected. Bacteria often grow in cuts that aren't cleaned well. That's called correlation. The bacteria didn't cause the cut, they just came later. Dr. Elaine Shaw of UCLA Medical Center explains that we are not yet sure whether organisms that grow in our gut cause certain diseases or are simply correlated with certain diseases. There are many different diseases that are associated with changes in the microbiome. But what's not clear is whether these changes actually cause the disease or cause symptoms or whether they're just a side effect. And so the way that you figure this out is first, you maybe correlate whether a disease is associated with changes in the microbiome. And if there is a correlation, then you really have to test causality. And um, typically the way that's done is by using animal models. So we asked Dr. Chutkin about some experiments that had been performed in animal models. Some of the more compelling studies involve mice that are raised germ-free. And when we transfer microbes from mice that are anxious to these germ-free mice, we can induce anxiety and depression, and we can induce obesity when we take microbes from obese mice and transfer them to lean germ-free mice. They can become obese in a relatively short period of time without any significant change in their diet. 
and we've actually seen the same thing in humans. So aside from obesity, this, this idea of behaviors like anxiety and feeling depressed and so on very much seem to be, I don't want to say controlled, but there is a huge contribution from our microbiome and the different specific compilation of bacteria that we have in our gut really seems to affect that. And again, I think it's an incredibly optimistic message in terms of people who suffer from mood disorders, feelings of hopelessness and despair, the idea that that's not something that's sort of ingrained in your DNA. Now, if that wasn't entirely clear, Dr. Chutkin is saying that fecal transplants in laboratory mice can affect things like obesity or anxiety in the mice. The big question is whether changing the microbiome in humans will have similar effects. A recent review of the scientific literature, published in a prestigious medical journal, stated that early findings in animal models look promising. However, they cautioned that this is a frontier area of research and that promising results seen in animals may not hold true in humans. In other words, take it all with a grain of salt. It's a really fascinating interplay between environmental factors, microbes, and our genes. And if we can figure out how to manipulate this, and again, through food mostly, we can really be the architects of our own health, which is incredibly exciting. And that excitement has spurred an entire industry centered on products called probiotics, which are live bacteria, microbes, that are consumed with the intent that they will keep your gut healthy. Let's hear again from Dr. Shao about probiotics. The way that we think about probiotics right now are, you know, yogurt and supplement, nutritional supplements that we could buy in, in the grocery store. But the kind of frontier in probiotics is really redefining them as live biotherapeutics, just like the medicines that you would be prescribed by a doctor and that they've been rig rigorously tested in the lab, whereas current probiotics and, and yogurt have not. The question of what we should be eating to best nourish our microbiomes and nourish ourselves is really difficult to answer currently because there's a lot of variation in, in, in our microbiomes. So each person is unique in what microbes that they have. And what's also important is each person's um, human genome and how that influences the microbiome. And in the future, you know, be able to say, this is the healthiest microbiome for your genetic makeup and medical history. So since we're playing with concepts like the gut garden or the Garden of Eden, we might think about the microbiome like different plants in a garden. Some people might be growing corn and tomatoes and other people might be growing blueberries and raspberries. And the foods that you eat are like the fertilizer you give your garden. So Dr. Shao is basically saying that not everyone needs to consume endless cartons of Greek yogurt every day. Some of us might do better with, I don't know, ice cream. In moderation, of course. Let's hear again from Dr. Chutkin regarding ways in which clinicians can detect which organisms we have in our guts. We do some diagnostic testing. We use DNA extraction technique and identify the common large families of bacteria growing in your gut. And from that information and from the history, we're really able to piece together a very good picture of what your microbiome looks like and what sort of disarray might be going on. I don't recommend everybody check their microbiome any more than I recommend everybody check their genome. But if you have a compelling family history, you have symptoms yourself, or you're concerned that you're going down the wrong path, then I think it can be a good idea. And then we get to the good part, which is fixing it. 
and we usually recommend a model of removing, replacing, and restoring. We remove the offending agents, drugs like antibiotics, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, hormone replacement therapy, all the things that we know are really deleterious to those fragile microbes. We replace them with a robust probiotic, and depending on what your profile looks like, we use various combinations of probiotics and generally very large amounts, billions and billions, to replace some of the damaged or lost microbes. And then we try and restore the microbiome through a specific diet that takes out a lot of the processed food and also includes a lot of the healthy foods, indigestible plant fiber and fermented foods and other things that we know are helpful for helping you grow a good gut garden. So who's ready to get their microbiome checked? Or do we wait until the research has progressed beyond animal models? Is the microbiome at the leading edge or the bleeding edge? These are the tough questions that surround nutritional science. And while we don't have the answers for the microbiome just yet, there is an area of nutritional science where we do have the answers, where hundreds of thousands of people afflicted with an immune disorder affected by diet have been helped. I'm Alice Bast. I'm president and CEO of the National Foundation for Celiac Awareness. I have celiac disease, so I had an eight-year journey um, of having a full-term stillbirth, three miscarriages, a two-pound baby. I lost 25 pounds. Wherever I went, I had to know where a bathroom was. It was really horrible. And it was really hard to work, it was hard to live, and to think that you were sick all the time and living on all kinds of medication. I visited 23 doctors before the family vet diagnosed me with celiac disease. Vet said to me, you know, sometimes animals have trouble with their food. And you know what, maybe it's the food that you're eating is causing your illness. I went to a gastroenterologist and said, can you test me for celiac disease? And sure enough, it came out positive. And that first step, that simple blood test, restored my health and helped me reclaim my life. Dr. Daniel Leffler from Harvard Medical School. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder, so that means a disorder where your body attacks itself. It's triggered by gluten, which is found in wheat, rye, barley. Uh, it's the major protein in wheat. The combination of gluten in your immune system actually leads to an inflammatory response where you attack yourself. You attack your small intestine primarily. 1% of the general population has celiac disease. That actually makes it one of the most common autoimmune diseases in the population. In America today, only about 15% of the people out there with celiac disease have been diagnosed. So we say roughly a couple million people have celiac disease in the United States. Only a couple hundred thousand of them have actually ever gotten the diagnosis. Most people with celiac disease are walking around with the disease and potentially suffering from the disease, but have not been diagnosed and are not being treated for it. Once I went on a gluten-free diet, I felt so much better. It was incredible. I thought I had a life sentence. I thought I was dying of cancer. 21 years ago, nobody even knew what the word gluten was. So it wasn't so easy. But within two weeks, I started to feel better. Discovering the role of gluten in celiac disease was one of the triumphs of nutritional science. It looked like a win for science and a win for those with celiac disease. But then something happened. The fastest growing new food label is gluten-free. Everything from gluten-free beer to gluten-free goodies. I'm gluten-free now, but you know, I'm not gonna be annoying about it. Too late. Uh, let's go to Whole Foods and buy a bunch of stuff from that weird aisle. 
There's been a lot of confusion about gluten lately. People saying that gluten is the cause of cancer, gluten should be avoided, gluten can make your d- fly off, but let's set the record straight. I've never eaten white bread in the flesh. I cut my teeth on gluten-free from the health aisle. Cause every product's got fructose, lactose, gluten in the fine print. This food, that food, even in the wine bin, we don't dare. Well, I think it's just about being a part of a new movement, always. You know, for me, Ciroc is a gluten-free vodka. Beside the fact that it tastes good, it's good for me, too. If you stopped eating gluten, you'd feel way better all day. You don't even know what gluten is. I know is. what gluten is. It's something that's used to categorize things that are bad. You know, calories, that's a gluten. Fat, that's a gluten. Gluten means bad shit, man, and I'm not eating it. For those with celiac disease, they have to be on a gluten-free diet. In order to be well, there's no choice. The people that are choosing a gluten-free lifestyle, they're dabbling in it. They're saying, well, I'm trying gluten-free because I feel better. This is what is known as, as the gluten paradox. This is, as far as I know, the only condition in medicine where the majority of people with the disease are not on treatment, and the majority of people on treatment don't have the disease. So how did a diet that was designed for people with serious autoimmune disease become a mainstream phenomenon? Back to our health experts, Alan Aragon and Daniel Leffler. A lot of people think they have a gluten intolerance. And then there's this sort of social phenomenon where people almost want to belong to a club, even if, if it's a club of people who think they're sick. Conceptions about the overall health of a lower gluten diet or effects on energy, academic or athletic performances, all sorts of theories and practices. Some of them are supported by science, most of them currently are not. Just because it's gluten-free does not mean it's more healthy, and many of the gluten-free substitutes are actually in many ways less healthy. They can be higher in fat, they can be higher in sugar. We asked if some gluten-free foods could cause people to gain weight. We actually do see a problem with people gaining weight, too much weight, on a gluten-free diet. Venture capitalists were behind the marketing of, you know, some of the larger gluten-free brands. And they bring in people that are extremely smart and really know how to market to the consumer. So they marketed, you know, weight loss because guess what? We all want to be as healthy as we can and we all want to have, you know, an ideal weight. Many, many times I've been asked by magazines, you know, tell me how you lost weight on a gluten-free diet. Tell me about the food that you're eating. And when I tell them that I didn't lose weight, that I'm healthy, and that I actually, my favorite food is, you know, things like avocado and, and you know, yams and raspberries, and I try to eat what's naturally gluten-free, they may not want to always hear that. They're looking to push the, you know, the, the gluten-free foods, and I say, but these are gluten-free foods. They're naturally gluten-free and they're healthy. And some of the least scientific ideas about gluten come from celebrities. Why is there what we call the celebritization of the gluten-free diet? You know, people like Oprah were, you know, part of that. When I saw Oprah on television saying, I'm trying a gluten-free diet to lose weight, I thought this is really gonna hit mainstream media. Juicing, cleansing, and fad diets continue to grow in popularity. They are detoxifying our bodies 24-7 all day long. They're pushing out pathogens and expelling pollutants and detoxifying chemicals. Dr. Oz has become one of America's most trusted docs. Now I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. What's so wrong with that? Name me one case where a man named Oz claimed mystical powers and led people horribly astray. Name me one case. You can't do it. Celebrity diet advice, the safest bet is to just 
run for the nearest exit. Joining us now, Suzanne Summers. She now has a new book out called Sexy Forever, How to Fight Fat After 40. And when I sit in restaurants, I kind of look at people and I go, oh, they've got a gluten intolerance. Oh, they got a thyroid problem. Wow. A lot of them are completely crazy. <laughs> so why do we give celebrities a voice to speak about things they know very little about? Let's hear again from Alan Levinovitz. We, at least in modern secular society, no longer look to religious ascetics or saints as exemplars of how to live. We look to Saint Oprah instead. We want to be like uh, Beyonce or we want to be like athletes that we see. And so I think celebrities feel pressure to be moral exemplars, to tell people how to live, to show through their own actions a way of life that other people can follow. The classic example of a TV celebrity giving non-optimal advice, Oprah at one point went gluten-free until, of course, she um, bought stock in Weight Watchers, at which point she endorsed bread again. And so there's a, there's a lot of celebrities that say this. And, and to tell you the truth, I, I used to be less sympathetic, but, but now I understand what's, what's happening here at least a little bit, which is that celebrities are normal people. And if you have celiac disease or you had, you know, and it was undiagnosed and then you go gluten free, you really will experience what feels like a genuine medical miracle. And there's nothing more powerful than the experience of a genuine medical miracle to turn someone into an evangelist. And when enough celebrities evangelize the merits of a diet they believe in, a food fad is born. Let's hear again from Alan Aragon. The cardinal sign of a fad diet is when it's touted as the universal solution for everybody. The idea that you have to eat this list of magic foods and avoid this list of magic foods, I think it comes from people who essentially want to believe in some kind of magical protocol. I can't go to Taco Bell. I'm on an all-carb diet. Our life was all about juice and smoothies. Eat more butter, meat, and cheese. Don't eat sugar. I feel like such a heifer. I had two bowls of Special K, three pieces of turkey bacon, a handful of popcorn, five peanut butter M&Ms, and like three pieces of licorice. <gasps> the breatharian can live literally on air. How long did you go without eating? Just on water and tea for two years. I don't mean to belittle your beliefs, and I'm sure they're sincerely held, but this is nonsense. There are lots of good ethical reasons for adopting diets, but it's important not to confuse ethics with health. Vegetarianism, for example, I think there's a lot of really good reasons to be a vegetarian, but vegetarians often want to go one step further and say, because something that they believe is ethically good, it must also be a superior diet for their health. That's simply not true. There's a raging debate ongoing about the health impact and ethical implications of a new area of science that involves genetic engineering. The suspect in question is called a GMO, or genetically modified organism. Question is, is it too risky to move DNA from one organism to another without using the normal breeding or reproduction processes? Hi, I'm Yvette Dantremont. I run Cybabe.com. I was a science speaker and advocate. I worked as an analytical chemist, and I also have a degree in chemistry. I have a great job if you can get it. I tell people they're full of for a living. My name is Anne-Marie Cantrell, and my background is in early childhood special education. I'm Karen Stark. I co-founded GMO Free Pennsylvania with Anne-Marie. I went from being a McDonald's mom to becoming a GMO-free activist. Let's hear the anti-GMO position from Anna Marie first. 
about 20 years ago, I actually got sick and the core of my illness was very much food related. So I really started to learn about food and food system issues and got very, very interested in the whole GMO issue. Our mission is really teaching people about the distinction between genetic modification and genetic engineering. So we're advocating for labeling of objects that are genetically engineered. The distinction that Anna Marie speaks of is the difference between genetic modification, which can be accomplished outside of the laboratory, and genetic engineering, which involves the manipulation of DNA inside the laboratory. Anti-GMO activists tend to be fairly comfortable with certain types of genetic modification that do not involve too much laboratory science or the movement of genes from one species to another. For example, for years, farmers have been crossbreeding crops to improve the traits of one crop with a few of the favorable traits from a related crop. Genetic engineering eliminates the menage a trois with the farmer and instead bypasses breeding altogether. DNA is injected into the recipient crop through a tiny needle in the lab. No farmer, no donor pollen, lots of complicated science. It's still a very, very new technology and science is always changing, right? And so my stance is we don't know what we don't know. We saw the same thing with tobacco. We saw the same thing when um, the doctor came out and said that lead was dangerous. All of these things that are proven to be safe. And then a couple years down the line, we hear, oops, that's not true. Now Yvette Dautremont takes the position that genetic engineering is safe. Ironically, she started out as an anti-GMO vegetarian before being diagnosed with celiac disease. I got really, really sick in my mid-20s. While I was going to my doctors and trying to handle it responsibly, uh, I was looking through the internet, you know, screw-up machine of food bloggers and trying to figure out, could someone tell me any way to not feel like I'm dying? There was people telling me, go organic, go vegan, go paleo. You'll do anything for relief at that point. Like, if someone tells you going vegan will save you, you'll do it. And I did for two years. Like, if someone tells you cutting out chocolate will save you, I did that for six months. It was a dark six months of my life. Yvette finally found out that she had celiac disease and that she could cure it by eliminating gluten from her diet. After falling for it all and after going through it, I said, you know, I don't want someone else to go through what I did and go through two years of going vegan when I really, I just needed to cut out, uh, you know, wheat or uh, gluten. I don't want somebody else to think that cutting out random things in their diet can cure one of these horrible diseases. And I want people to have the right information and have it given to them in, in an accessible way. Yvette feels that that right information comes from science and not food bloggers. So she's made it a personal goal to try to educate the general public about the science of food. And that got her entangled in the GMO debate. She feels that the anti-GMO camp's viewpoint is irrational when it comes to certain types of genetic changes in food crops. Whenever we think about a GMO, a scientist goes into a lab, takes one or two genes, splices them into something, and then something magical happens. That's one version of genetic modification. There's also mutagenesis, where they apply radiation to something, scramble some genes, and in this case, it gives us the ruby red grapefruit. And that's not something where people are screaming that it's a GMO for some reason, even though they're applying radiation to the grapefruits. But people are less scared of that for some reason because it doesn't involve gene splicing and thousands more genes are being changed in random order. Every generation has something that they're sure is killing them. And now it's the GMOs and the glyphosate. And glyphosate is the chemical name for an herbicide called Roundup, manufactured by Monsanto. Crops can be genetically modified to be resistant to Roundup. So the idea is Roundup will kill weeds, but not crops that have been modified to resist Roundup. And it's funny that if people actually looked at the toxicology of this, glyphosate 
is much less toxic than the pesticide it replaced. So people are only, I think, afraid of glyphosate because of its entanglement with GMOs, and they're just not sure of this new technology that we have with GMOs. Washington state voters have rejected Initiative 522, which would have required warning labels for foods with genetically modified ingredients. Thank goodness. Folks, I believe it is none of our business what we're putting in our mouths. America's food manufacturers can't take the time and expense to find out if there's genetically modified ingredients in their food. They don't even know if there's food in their food. <laughs> I say we get rid of all labels. All food should come in an unmarked box. Like my new line of snack food, Stephen Colbert's Just Eat It. Every box comes with a complimentary blindfold. You put on the blindfold, open the box, and stick it in your mouth. In July of 2016, President Obama signed a bill requiring that foods be labeled if they contain ingredients that have been genetically modified. Activists do not feel that the bill went far enough, because the label can simply refer to a website or 800 number providing for more information about the contents. I asked Anna Marie if the bill had gone further and required an explicit label that this product contains GMOs, would her job be done? If we got all of the labels for foods that were genetically engineered, would I consider my job done? No. People need to be empowered to make their own choices, so we really form GMO Free PA as a way to educate consumers about the latest information, scientific information coming down the pike about genetically engineered ingredients, and to empower people to make their own decisions. My vision is for people to start eating whole foods again and being really connected to where their food is coming from. Back to Yvette. I don't just believe that we need GMOs to feed the world. I, I have evidence that we need GMOs to feed the world. And it's, it's partially because right now we're seeing crops that are dying because of viruses. We almost saw the American chestnut die and a genetic modification saved it. Uh, citrus greening, all the citrus plants in Florida, genetic modification looks like it's the only thing that's gonna save it. And we're continuing to see other plants that are getting sick that we can save with a slight little genetic modification. And it's making farming better and it's going to make the food supply long-term safer and hardier and it's going to help feed the world. And I believe firmly that if they ever show that a specific GMO or pesticide is not safe for the environment, that it will be pulled from market. And so the debate continues. The next time you're in the grocery store, take a glance at some of the food labels. Do they influence your buying decisions? Do you ever wonder who's behind the labeling verbiage? Tom Asacker knows He's written about how ideology and beliefs factor into how marketing organizations target their customers. Here's his candid view of what goes on behind the scenes at many organic and natural food companies. Who is going to make money or benefit from those foods? The game is, how can we label it and get away with it? I've been behind closed doors at all these companies. There's nothing other than how do we give people what they want and make money at it. That's it. People will pay the premium, buy the non-GMO soup or whatever it is they're making, and say, I'm happy because someone has validated my belief in giving me this product that I want. That's how it works. If the people who are interested in driving their business forward in the organic realm, if they believe 
that adding non-GMO or whatever it is, labeling or anything, to what they're doing is going to elevate how people, consumers look at what they offer. They're going to get behind it and push it. I can guarantee you that everyone has some type of agenda, including the FDA. Anne-Marie Cantrell again. When you read something on chicken that says 100% natural, that really means nothing. It just means that it's chicken, and chicken is considered natural, right? But, or they'll say antibiotic-free, but they're still eating GMO grain, and they're not out on pasture. So really understanding what those labels mean, and that's where the marketing comes in, and that's what's so hard to you know, wrap people's heads around sometimes. Well, look, I bought this natural chicken. I'm really sorry, but that's a marketing ploy, and it really doesn't mean anything. Dr. Stephen Novella of Yale Medical School. Marketing is all about convincing you that something has value or that you want to buy something. Uh, and so products will often use terms that sound vaguely scientific, but don't really have any operational definition, any specific meaning, any technical definition. They're just used to give an impression of being sciencey or backed by science to customers, which they are counting on not being very scientifically literate. Companies are mirroring what the public wants, but also they're trying to be on the cutting edge. And companies, what they will do, not unlike the media, is take highly preliminary studies, whether about the microbiome or the benefits of avocados, whatever it is that's currently in the headlines, and they will use these to make claims about the benefits of their products. And the unsuspecting public takes these companies to be representing a scientific consensus, whereas in fact, what companies are doing is taking preliminary science, often based on studies with extremely small sample sizes, and turning them into what looks like actual scientific facts. Here's a brilliant segment from John Oliver's show, Last Week Tonight. Do you love science and all its complexity, but wish it could be a little less complex and a lot less scientific? Introducing Todd Talks, where the format of TED Talks meets the intellectual rigor of morning news shows. Chocolate. Mmm. It will kill you. What if I were to tell you all that the cure to racism is coffee? Our scientists at the Skittles Foundation for Rainbow Tasting have done some pioneering work. We placed 37 volunteers from Tulsa, Oklahoma on an all-Skittle diet for six weeks, and guess how many were killed by baboons? One. One of the big problems with nutrition science, but also with science more generally, is that it's not always the case that a single scientific study can settle a question. I think the general public is, is used to the idea that scientists go out, they run an experiment, and they discover something. It takes many, many studies to replicate findings in order to come to a conclusion. And those preliminary studies often get hyped either by the media or by the public relations department of a university as if they've proved the conclusion that in fact they are only setting out to investigate. And companies, of course, jump on that and they like to promise the public that they have the holy grail of science, but like the holy grail may not actually exist and certainly takes a long time to find. 
Let's hear from Dr. Brendan Nyan on why nutritional studies are not well-suited to rigorous scientific investigation. Diet is an especially challenging area to study because, of course, no one wants scientists telling them what foods they can eat, and it's very hard to track people for very long periods of time. The combination of those two factors mean that the evidence base in nutrition is weaker than a lot of other scientific areas, and the recommendations are thus more variable. And by more variable, he means flip-flopping. One year, butter's going to kill us. The next year, butter is fine. What we need are randomized controlled trials. Just a fancy word for a well-done experiment. Which allow us to isolate the effect of a specific diet, for instance, on people's health. We asked Dr. Leffler from Harvard Medical School what would be required to perform a precise scientific study on the effects of high-fructose corn syrup versus cane sugar on the health of a population. So you'd have to take 10,000 people and say, for the next decade, you're going to eat only foods with high-fructose corn syrup, and you're going to eat only foods with cane sugar, and then look 10 years later to see what their risks of having a cardiovascular event were. It's easy, relatively, to put a hundred or a thousand people on a pill or a placebo and see which one makes their headaches go away. It's much, much more complicated to try to decipher what kind of dietary changes lead to health risks in certain populations. And that's why there's so much gray area. It's not that we haven't tried, it's that this stuff is really legitimately hard to do. So whatever happened to all things in moderation? It's so unexciting and it, it doesn't stir the emotion to give the advice that moderation is good. I mean, moderation is the most unsexy, uncommercially exciting concept there is. And moderation is backed by science, but it just doesn't sell very well. I understand that it's very difficult for the public to sort through all of these public scientific controversies. Is global warming real? Is genetically modified food safe? Is there really an epidemic of gluten sensitivity? The science is complicated, and it's often conflicting. It's tricky, it's really hard, unless you're pretty scientifically literate yourself and have access to really good sources, you're probably gonna be more confused than anything else just by reading what's out there in the mainstream press and on the internet. As Dr. Novella points out, preliminary research reports can be unreliable or provide only partial answers, and scientists know that. That's why good scientists wait until other scientists, working at multiple locations, repeat and confirm research experiments before they give them much credence. One of the problems we see in our culture today is that there's this frustrating disconnect between what's happening in the lab, what scientists are doing, and the public perception of what's happening, the public belief. There's this gulf between the two. Part of the problem is that science is messy and it's complicated and it's hard. And a lot of what scientists do is preliminary. They're just testing their guesses. They're trying to see if an idea has any potential. They gather preliminary evidence. It takes a long time to sort out which ideas really are true. You have to get to a consensus of really rigorous, well-performed scientific studies. But there's all this noise that goes on. It's like a pyramid. You have this massive base of noise and preliminary evidence and guesses and errors and mistakes. And then only when you get to the very top of the most rigorous replicated studies do we have something reliable. The press, the media, now blogs, the internet, 
we have access to all the noise. It's all there for the public to see, and it's getting reported, and reporters can comb through the noise to see what's sexy and interesting and exciting and different, and that gets reported without putting it into the context of where it is in that pyramid of evidence. And so the public is now met with a host of misinformation, of preliminary information, of misleading information. There's a layer of people who are trying to market stuff to you and they're pulling from all the base of noise. They have a motivation, either ideological or commercial, to convince you of an idea or to convince you that a product has value. And they have all this noise to draw from. It's really easy to make it seem like whatever they're selling to you is backed by science, even when it isn't. We can't all be experts in everything. And so we have to trust other experts to give us good information and we have to trust the media on communicating that information truthfully. At the same time, I think that we can teach basic philosophy of science in a way that it is currently not taught today in our schools. It doesn't take much to show students, even at a very young age, that an experiment can appear to prove something, but actually not prove something. Science is a communal enterprise in which people build on research done by other scientists and move incrementally forward. It is not a practice, as I think is, it is often taught in schools, uh, of, of revolutions done by individuals who ignore the consensus. Those are the romantic stories, but they're not the true ones. And I think if we push back against that conception of science, the public will be less susceptible to the rhetoric of quackery and diet gurus. You also need to add to that, how do you evaluate whether a source is credible? Is the source selling you something? Does it have an ideological axe to grind? Who seems to have the better argument at the end of the day? If you read only one side, you can convince yourself of anything. You could support any belief you want to have if all you're going to do is cherry pick the bits of information and the opinions that support your position. But when you seek out all ideas and you say, what are the most objective, the most scientific sources saying? Is there a consensus? Then you have a chance of getting to, I think, a reasonable assessment of what the science actually says. This stress about what we're supposed to eat and what we're not supposed to eat is, is part of the problem. Clinging to those headlines and paying attention to every link that comes up in your Facebook feed is, is actually just as toxic for you, except it's toxic for your ability to think critically. People really want a detox. They want to be able to purify themselves. And I actually think that there is a detox that's genuinely healthy, that can improve us physically and mentally. And that's a detox from the endless stream of headlines that tell us what to eat and what not to eat. And the blogs run by diet gurus with these photos of people with six-pack abs and impossibly tanned skin. And I think that as a culture and as individuals, if we want to think critically about what actually constitutes a good diet, we need a detox from the hyperbole. We need a detox from the false promises of miracles, a detox from the apocalyptic statements about what processed foods will do to our brains and our bodies. And we need to step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, we're doing fine right now. If we eat in moderation, generally speaking, we're okay. And there's still a lot to learn. 
Well, if everything in moderation is not what you wanted to hear, we apologize. We're just never going to make it as a morning news show or a TED Talk. The verified scientific facts do not yet support a different recommendation, despite what the media, the celebrities, the health gurus, the pseudoscientific charlatans, and the gurgling microbes in the guts of mice and rats might suggest. The reality is, despite all of the processed food and synthetic sweeteners and preservatives that have been consumed over the last hundred years, humans are living far longer than they did a century ago. And even though much of that is due to better sanitation and modern medicine, topics we'll explore in another episode, somehow our engineered food supply has not caused that trend to reverse. Could we make additional improvements? Of course. Are we consuming too much of some foods? Yes. It's well known that overeating leads to obesity, which can have many negative health effects. If one eats or drinks to excess, all bets are off. You may, in fact, be banished from the Garden of Eden. But eating in moderation, even if it includes some food that comes from that infamous tree of knowledge, is probably okay. And with that, we leave you with one last thing to chew on. So we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank our production team, Christina Sorge for producing the episode along with assistant producers Georgia Cohen, Mike Scally, and Simone Jantz, editing by Ollie Riley-Smith, sound design and musical score by Andy Sorge and Scott McKay-Gibson, and all of our experts and guests who brought wisdom to this episode. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it. If so, then please rate us favorably and come back for more. You can visit our website, mbelief.com, that's the letter M followed by the word belief with an F, dot com, for more information. Or find us wherever podcasts are available. I'm Joe Sorge. Thank you for listening.